собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. You can help support the podcast by going to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Stalin summoned a number of economists and told them he wanted to hold a feast for all the people, a feast so great they would revel for weeks. He asked the economists how much this would cost, but nobody could, no one could say. Then one spoke up and said it could be done very cheaply. Buy a single bullet and shoot yourself then everyone will celebrate. Stalin was out swimming, but he began to drown. A Kolhoznik who was passing by jumped in and saved him. Stalin started to ask the Kolhoznik what he would like as a reward. When the latter realized who he had saved, nothing, he said, just please don't tell anyone I saved you. That was just two of the many, many, many jokes that Soviet citizens told about life under Stalin. But what were these jokes really about? What do we make of them as reflections of Soviet culture, ways of coping with the unpredictability of everyday life, and as forms of sociability? For some insight, I turn to John Waterlow to uncover the many meanings of the Soviet joke. John Waterlow received his PhD in history at Oxford and went on to be a British Academy postdoctoral fellow there. His book manuscript is tentatively titled It's Only a Joke, Comrade, Humor, Trust, and Everyday Life Under Stalin, 1929-1941. He's also the co-editor of the forthcoming War Crimes Trials and Investigations, a multidisciplinary introduction, to be published by Palgrave in a couple of months. John is also the host of the podcast Voices in the Dark, which features conversations and interviews about real life, psychology, philosophy, psychedelics, spirituality, social dynamics, and much more. You can find episodes of Voices in the Dark at voicesinthedark.world. Here's John Waterloo. So I thought we'd start by just asking you, you know, what inspired you to write about humor and jokes in 1930s Soviet Union? It's a question that I continually ask myself over like the past 10 years going, why? <laughs> why did I do that? And I kind of began to make sense of it more as I, I look back and saw that different interests after there all seemed to sort of focus around a similar fascination, which is how do people really make sense of periods of enormous change? How do they talk about it? How do they try and make sense for themselves and uh, for the people that they care about around them? And I, I was particularly fascinated by the 1930s in the Soviet Union because they're trying to make not only a whole new world, but a whole new people to live in it. And I remember the first time that I, I got my hands on Stephen Kotkin's Magnetic Mountain, I was like, oh my God. And then, 
Jochen Helberg's Revolution on My Mind. I was like, oh my God. Because I was, I was really excited, but also like the best, or like my favorite kind of history books. I was like, but I also think you guys are wrong. Like, <laughs> it was inspiring to go and ask some, some other questions. And I guess we, we can get in the details later. But my, my sense of the way that I was taught history at school and then university around this period was this is a massive period of change and we could look at it as something that was uh, really bad and dominated and crushed people. We could look at it as a, an exciting experiment in something that some people believed in. And yet it seemed to end up around the sort of polarized pole, well, poles for a long time. Like were people brainwashed into believing or were they just too scared to be able to, to do anything else? And then when I was reading things like Sarah Davis's book about popular opinion, she found when the archives opened all these different voices, some that were positive and some that were negative. And I was like, but is that, is that it? Did people like it or dislike it? And then the sort of sense I have, tell me if you think it's different, was that over time there's been more kind of statement that, oh, a lot of people are living in a gray zone between affirmation and dissent. And I was like, well, well, what does that mean? What is what does it mean? This 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 gray zone. Um, I think Martin Malia said it meant people had to live in a constant state of schizophrenia. Essentially, I'm like, I don't I don't really buy that. I I don't think that people in the past and in that time were so unlike us that they weren't trying to make the world that they were living in make some kind of sense to them. Um, so why jokes? I guess well. When jokes turned up in, in the books that I was reading, I'd see them and go, oh, that's fascinating. That, that doesn't sound like people who've been crushed, who don't have any sort of critical spirit or a playful ability to laugh at their situation and that they're in. Um, but it also didn't seem to sound to me like people who were committedly uh, against the regime and were resisting it. And yet when the jokes turned up in, in various books on popular opinion a kind of this little dash of creative seasoning like uh, oh here's a funny story to lighten the mood and now I'll get back to my argument and I thought w wait there's something very strange about the fact they're telling these jokes in a time that's meant to be so repressive and I I, I wanted to find a way to look at how people are grappling with judging trying to make sense of adapting to a situation that they didn't have a power directly to change themselves but they had to find ways to get used to one way or another. So I thought, okay, let, let's find out about like some of the psychology of humor and let's see if I can find, are there more jokes under Stalin? And uh, most people said, no, no, there weren't, don't bother. But I did anyway. <laughs> yeah, about this issue of the, the people living in the gray zone, one of the things that I've uh, always... Uh, been uncomfortable about both the polarization but also people like you said the gray zone is it seems to um, impose a level of social and political consciousness on people in the past and people in Stalinist Russia in particular that I don't think has ever historically existed and so what I found interesting about your use of the joke and maybe have you go into more the way that the function of the joke as you see it within Stalinist culture in general is that it's a very normative practice in the sense that people 
have humor. People find humor in all sorts of strange situations. Uh, people make jokes about all sorts of things, but that doesn't mean it has to be uh, imposed with any kind of political content. Um, so when you're looking at all these jokes and you've uncovered many, 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 what is, how do they function within kind of everyday life? Of I think they function, I guess, to try and take a, a, a broad way to answer that question. They, they, they function in the same way they do in the societies that we're used to. But because jokes depend on the context, the, the significance of them changes in every given context. So we might tell a joke um, because we're angry. We might tell a joke to charm a stranger or break the ice. We can do it because we, we, we don't like our boss. We do it because we're in a, a, a situation that we can't escape. And we humor is just a... It's part of social communication, which is as broad as social communication itself. Um, it's something really inherent to the human condition, which is why people have been trying to study it since as early as we can look back. Um, it's like Cicero wrote about humor, trying to understand how it made sense. And humor, humor theorists have like ever since then and before then as well, gone, there's something really human about this. Now, why? What, what is it for? And I guess a little bit of background is that things tended to, for a long time, have crystallized around three broad schools of thought. Um, there are those who look to Thomas Hobbes and others who say, well, humor is laughing at someone who seems inferior to you because then you feel better about yourself. Um, Freud, who they thought that it was like a release of psychic energy, that we have tension that we want to let out and resolve that sense of tension. Um, and then there's Henri Bergson, who said it's, well, it's about incongruity. It's about how our expectations are upset. Um, and that gives us a kind of delight when we um, lead ourselves down one expectation and it turns out to be something else. And those are the kind of the big three around which everyone else since then has built their theories of, of how humor works. And they all, like, it seems, I've read so many, and they're so boring, these books about humor. <laughs> it's this, this bitter irony. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they're, they're all like, well, none of these theories is good enough on its own, but let's try and mix a bit of that and a mix a bit of that, mix a bit of that together. But at the end of it, those those theorists themselves, and Freud and Bergson in particular, were very aware that it is deeply entwined with the human experience in a social setting. And as soon as we try and have a grand unified theory of what humor is, we might as well try and have a grand unified theory about um, what fiction is and what storytelling is. Um, and so it's it's a much broader question about the, the human condition, which is why I wanted to, to look into this in the first place. Um, but I probably sort of trailed away from the point about talking about the 1930s. Your point was, I think, that it's, it's, not, it's not simply a case that people are super politically minded when they're making these jokes. And I definitely agree with that. Um, there's many parts of that we can get into, but say, telling a joke about the fact that you uh, had to wait in line again from 4 a.m. to get any food and you're like this is the beautiful way that we march towards socialism or you've just found out there's no bread rations again and your wife has been arrested and you're like thank you comrade stalin for this wonderful life I, that does something for you personally it 
it's kind of an assertion of agency. It's an assertion of, of self, like, I'm not so dumb that I can't see what you're doing to me. And I'm going to, because it's something I cannot change, I'm going to laugh at it because I feel that Hobbes-style superiority by doing so. I am also able to look at the incongruity and highlight it between what you, the regime, promise me is meant to be the case and what I'm experiencing at the everyday level. And in the process of doing this, I have the sort of the Freud part, which is I can try and discharge some of the angst by shoving something scary and unchangeable into a genre where nothing is even meant to make sense. And I can laugh at it because it's so absurd to me. I want to ask you about your sources because you have just, I don't know how many of these jokes you've collected and then others have collected them too. Um, and you, but you collected a lot just from your ar archival research. So what types of uh, sources record jokes in the Soviet Union? Well, first off, when I tried to find some jokes, there's, there's, there's dozens, if not hundreds of um, anthologies that have been published since that claim to be based on like the circulating joke culture of that period. But it's all pretty dodgy. And many of them, you can see they're from emigre publications and they're probably made up after the fact. Um, and there's this incredible compendium that someone called uh, Misha Melnichenko put together, which cross-references all of them um, and shows the ones that are most likely to have actually been in the Soviet Union as the living culture. So I f first of all, I found those and thought, well, this is good. Then I thought, ah, I can't really use these because they, they don't seem to be in part, uh, part of the culture truly. So um, I decided, okay, um, we've got some diaries, some published diaries. I can hopefully find some more that are from that period. So there's a few diarists in the book that I try and keep as our companions through um, the, the narrative. But in the archives, the documents... First off, I looked at those um, svodki, the reports on the mood of the population, um, which a lot of people had looked at before. Um, and one of the big criticisms about them as a source is that they, um, they kind of often exaggerate or just brush over what, what people say, like this person said something terrible, this said, person said something else. And it's all like through the regime's lens of what they're worried about at any given time. Um, but thankfully, uh, I found quite quickly that jokes are, were essentially recorded as evidence, obviously, of anti-Soviet agitation because the regime is very suspicious of humor in general. Um, but because the jokes were actually recorded in many of these documents, like in full, we don't have to look through the regime's eyes and go, look, it's an enemy of the people. We can go, oh, actually, this is really ambiguous. They seem to be mocking the regime in relation to its own promises. Like they're saying, why won't you live up to what you're promising to be? Or like saying, look, um, a, lot of, a lot of jokes were compared Lenin and Stalin and that basically Lenin is actually the good guy and like, Stalin, you suck. It's one of the, the most popular ones is, uh, or it seemed to be the most popular anyway, I found it so many times. Like why, why did uh, Lenin wear shoes and Stalin wears jackboots? And like, well, because Lenin knew where he was going. <laughs> <laughs> um but did, in these documents do they ever give you 
a sense of the context in which the jokes are being used in. Like you said, you know, they're certainly jokes referring to, you know, standing in line or, you know, particular events, whether they're, you know, somewhat personal or something like this. But when they are recorded, do you get a sense of where they're heard, um, the reactions of people to them, or or any of this other kind of contextual material? Sometimes in the Svodki, yes, it will say like when and where. Sometimes it's it's clear because the Svodki are, are actually generated by all sorts of different bodies from like your local factory right up to like regional and and so on levels. So if it's a more local one, it's often like, yes, in this room at that time, whilst this political educator was speaking, this person did this. Um, but the much more like rich sources for the context were um, criminal case files that I looked at um, several hundred of. Um, and they, I wouldn't say it's the principal source base, but it's probably like the, the richest. And unfortunately... Well, it's kind of unfortunate and fortunate. I thought it was unfortunate that I could only see the these particular cases because these were when people's criminal cases were reviewed um, by the procuracy. Um, and there was a, a big database that I managed to get access to at the... Um, at I always forget how to say it in English. I'm talking about GAF, the State Archive. Um, and... I thought, okay, so it's supervisory, they quote from the original investigations, they sketch out pretty much exactly this person has been reported to have said this in this setting to these people, they reacted like this, people have been called on since as witnesses, and these are their versions of the events, and we've looked back at this person's history, here is where they were born, their family scenario, like lots of details like that. And I thought, okay, well, this is pretty good. I'd like to see the originals, but they are, as far as I can tell, in the FSB archive these days. But when I went to Kiev, I worked in the former KGB archive there and saw a bunch of the original investigation reports, and they weren't any better. If anything, the supervisory documents at GAF were richer because they kind of had the wider view, like over time they collated documents from different bodies and reporters, got new statements, collated and contextualized things even better. That's that's not what we, we usually expect, right? We think that the there the more secrets in, you know, higher up the or within the secret police and not in these more accessible levels. Yeah, it was a welcome surprise given I have more access to the supervisory documents. So is, one of your chapters deals with the, with, um, the kind of response to the assassination of uh, Sergei Kirov and the mocking of, of Soviet leaders in general. And, Soviet, and Sergei Kirov is assassinated in December 1934. And as you note, and, and his murder, of course, becomes kind of the reason the, or one of the, the impulses for the terror in 1937. Um, but you also note that that Kirov became fodder for a lot of humor and ridicule, and you you call this uh, really cleverly Kirov's carnival. So what what do, what is this Kirov's carnival, and and what is the what does it say about the the mocking of the Soviet? I'm glad you think it's clever. I was like, ah, alliteration. <laughs> here we go, <laughs> instant bestseller. Um, I called it that because there's this whole idea of, of like the carnivalesque that Mikhail Bakhtin talked about, like talking about 
as part of folk cultures uh, around the world of a certain day or moment in the year where we have carnival, where we turn the world upside down and we mock the leaders and uh, it's maybe more like uh, outrageous humor and behavior is allowed. Um, It certainly wasn't allowed um, in the Soviet Union at this time. And yet what we see in the prescribed and demanded mourning for the murder of Kirov these kind of impulses coming from uh, the ordinary people who decide that, well, it's a holiday and I'm going to have fun. And in this, this dramatic event, perhaps, perhaps because of the heightened drama of it, the impulses come out all the more um, intensely. The people choose to look at things from a more comic way um, and uh, turn to traditional motifs and ways of dealing with leaders and situations that they don't like. So, for example, tons of jokes uh, appear that are uh, the kind that Bakhtin looked at. They're scatological, they're sexualized, they imagine degrading the corpse of Kirov and mocking him for being so fat, um, and talk about, like, eating his body, uh, like saying, oh, it's, it's, the, it's the morning celebration or the morning um, process for, for Kirov. Go to the canteen today. They'll be serving his brains. <laughs> it's like this really kind of perverse um, suggestions. There's, there's um, people who just get right down to the, the scatological uh, announcing at little Komsomol party gatherings, like, oh, where's Kirov buried? I'm going to go shit on his grave. <laughs> It's just, it's that immediate. And I kind of use that event to highlight these themes in the humor that carries us on throughout the 1930s aimed at all of the leaders. And what I think it it highlights in turning to these sort of traditional base motifs is that people certainly aren't just uh, speaking Bolshevik, that they are using very simple um, human everyday language to try and mock their their leaders and sometimes it's a bit it's more political in the sense of like saying you're su- you're super fat you clearly get more than us so if we kill Kirov everyone is going to be able to have tons of food in Leningrad this kind of imagined version that the people are going to get fed because the leadership are uh, reneging on their revolutionary promises they're becoming fat like the former landlords, so it's political and talking about the regime's own promises. But simultaneously, it's just this much older trope of mocking people on a physical level. It's much simpler. There's this, um, there's also, though, at the, the heart of it, something I try and highlight is that whilst this is, it's, it's funny and vulgar and base, but it's also ultimately an admission of weakness that. We're so, we so lack power in ourselves that the only way that we can imagine a victory or momentary power over the leaders who are determining our lives is to imagine at a physical level, like cutting them up, eating them, shitting on them, this kind of stuff. Right. It's like, it's like to, re- to reduce the, you know, the, 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 what's the word, the basest form of in, in society. Like if you are of the shit then that's is pretty much as low as you can go or if you are chopped up and dismembered and even cannibalized uh you are also like not only are you in that process imagining breaking you yourself breaking a bunch of taboos not just legal but social taboos you're also reducing the leader to basically useless material 
And it's breaking those taboos is also just part of the appeal of the humor in itself. And so I try and be careful not to say, you know, everything is intensely political as opposed to people can just really enjoy flipping the bird to authority. And and a lot of a lot of the response to Kirov's death too seems to me is people just want to have a party. They just they just want to relax. And whilst the regime sees this as uh, very worrying and like a huge political statement, when you get a a young a female worker that whose whose case that I, I looked at saying like po-faced, and I think she believed it as best I can tell to a, a party organizer when will the dancing be? And he's like, what are you talking about? This is a morning celebration. She's like, are you sure there really isn't going to be any dancing? Like we, we've, we've got all this work, all this, this like difficulty in our lives. There's food shortages. And I've had to mourn over so many things in the past. Can we really not have a dance? And it's sort of this naive desire for that, just an outlet. Right. And I, and I think this is, this is part of at least Bakhtin's understanding of the carnivalesque, and that is it is a safety valve release, right? It's to release some of the steam off of a kind of pressure situation by allowing the population to have this moment of turning the tables. It's it it's in in a way, it's also another form of social control, right? You just let some of the steam out. And it's interesting to me that the the Bolshevik regime didn't understand that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Now, at the same time, these in Kirov's, you know, in 1930s, you also have the Stalin cult, which is just pervasive. Um, and and I remember one of the jokes in your in your in your manuscript, which was something like, uh, you know, uh, Stalin falls in a river, a Khoznik jumps in and saves them, and when he gets Stalin out of the river, he he recognizes who he saved. And Stalin, you know, says, thank you. You know, what can I do for you? And the Kolkholznik says, uh, well, just don't tell anyone I saved you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, no, why did I save you? It's all a mistake. <laughs> right. So so what is the – talk about the ridicule in the context. I mean, because Stalin is the butt of many, many jokes. Um, uh, uh, so what, is, what does it say about the – what does this tell you about the Stalin cult? I think it tells us to – seemingly contradictory things one that the cult doesn't matter and one that it matters a lot so in the in the first instance like i think the, the conventional view seems to remain even if to the point where people don't even seem to need to argue about it anymore they say well stalin had a cult so even if life was really bad at local level in various ways and local officials were corrupt people could believe in stalin because his cult was pervasive, it was hard not to get wrapped up in this image of this mythical great leader, and so on. That in a way, he was untouchable, even if we could say he's surrounded by evil counselors who might be misleading him. Um, and this is what, you know, is still in the school books. I actually went and, at least in Britain, I got a bunch of what's being books to see what's being taught in high school still. And they're like, yes, the cult, it convinces people, um, and so on and so forth. Um, this kind of big brother idea that you love big brother despite everything um and yet in the humor well stalin is public enemy number one so it's untrue the cult wasn't enough to make him sacred at all the people made him profane but the thing is that why is he public enemy number one I'm like well because of the cult it was effective at making him like totally synonymous with the regime but that wasn't always a good thing to be 
Um, and there's, there was a Romanian joke about Ceausescu, which was like, in laughter as in life, he is at the center. And, and people mock the cult, like Orwell said something about this, there's like the, the bigger the fall, the bigger the joke. Um, and it's something like it would be better, it's more fun to throw a custard tart at a bishop than at a curate. There's like, it's a sense of power and a joy of transgression when someone's got further to fall. So my sense of what it, the humor so focused on Stalin is that tells us about the cult is that the cult is actually a lot like any other regime policy, that people respond to it selectively and differently at different times. And if part of it works for them, then they, they accept that bit. But that never means that it's sacred or above criticism. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting in the way that the, the proliferation of jokes about Stalin are part of the cult itself, it seems to me, what you're saying here. Yes, I think that's clearer than what I said. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, the other thing you, you talk, talk about these jokes is um, people use them as a way, or uh, not use them, I don't want to give that much instrumentalization of them, but they function as a way people coped and understood and explained some of the kind of cataclysmic of, you know, collectivization, forced industrialization, and the terror. So to talk about jokes as a kind of a, a lens, a way to cope, but also a lens in which to understand. Yeah, they're quite, there's different um, tendencies or themes that emerge for, for each of those examples. So I can talk a little bit about each of them. Um, for collectivization, it's actually quite a remarkably different tone to most of uh, the jokes that I found. Like the the jokes generally in the '30s are pretty dark, and I think it it helps me that I have a pretty black sense of humor, so I actually find them funny. <laughs> um, but in the collectivization ones, it's it's even worse. The jokes are sort of to the, the to the bleakest point of just saying, and we're all starving, is kind of the punchline over and over again. Um, but, but these are jokes, they're, or they're chastushki, these sort of sung little rhymes. So even if the content seems absolutely bleak and laden with despair and giving up to the winds of fate, the fact that they're telling them in these fun forms to me suggests that it's trying to create a community of suffering, that it's trying to make light things that are unchangeable. It's the kind of humor that you find in, in concentration camps um, or in the gulag. Or when I was, I was reading Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, and over and over again, he talks about the jokes people are exchanging with each other, even in Auschwitz. It's that kind of humor because it's helping people at an interpersonal and psychological level to cope with something that's um, incredibly terrible. Um, whereas the more politically minded jokes about a collectivization, because I found those two, which are kind of making jokes about how like the correct application of the party line, um, is when there is no food in, in the, the town and no food in the countryside, like that's how you do it right. And whereas like a Bukharanite one is one way and the other way and so on. Um, and the people who are telling those jokes, um, were the ones in the in the cities who weren't really directly experiencing it, um, or they were intellectuals who were like visiting. Like uh, Arthur Kersler records one of those in in his uh, autobiography. But the people who are in Ukraine, or people who have only recently come from the countryside or are living in places affected, uh, 
having this kind of bleak coping gallows humor. Um, so, and gallows humor is is a really interesting phenomenon in itself because it's it's laughing in the face of death, something that's completely inescapable and unchangeable. And you can't you can't change or escape it, but you can change at least momentarily how you feel about it. So in that moment where you say, oh, it looks like we're going to have nice weather today as you're led to the gallows, you can try and release some of that tension. And when you do it with a group, as various sociologists and psychologists have looked into, you kind of, you engage in some mutually agreed self-deception. You don't really explain anything, you explain it away. And I I would call it a placebo because it's it's not a real cure exactly and yet it works. Now a word from our sponsor. Want to learn Russian, Ukrainian, Arabic? The University of Pittsburgh Summer Language Institute offers intensive six, eight, and 10-week language study courses in Arabic, Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian, Bulgarian, Czech, Hungarian, Polish, Russian, Slovak, Turkish, and Ukrainian. That's a year's worth of coursework in one single summer. You can study at the University of Pittsburgh's main campus or study abroad. And if all that isn't enticing enough, courses are taught by exceptionally trained foreign language instructors. Pitt's Summer Language Institute accepts undergraduate and graduate students as well as professionals and retirees. Apply by March 2, 2018 to be eligible for generous scholarship funding. Join our program to discover the world. Apply now at sli.pit.edu. That's sli.pit.edu. Let me ask you something about gallows humor because um, Eagle Helfen uh, wrote an article a few years ago uh, that uh, in a quite an obscure journal, and I don't know how attention it's gotten. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I I think I know the one, but I haven't read it in a long time. Okay, so it, I, I just so one of the things that he points out is is while they're you know denouncing Bukharin and even in Politburo meetings or behind the scenes or even publicly in in these conferences, uh, they, there's lots of gallows humor. There's lots of like ridiculing the person that, that's being denounced into their face, uh, and and so what about the 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 gallows humor? From, say, I don't know if you can speak to it, but the gallows humor and the jokes told by the leadership, too. Yeah, I was trying to... I remember reading that article and um, really thinking that he missed missed the point. Uh, But I'd have to go back to my my notes to to remind myself what I thought about that one. But the... I, I don't know if it's, I don't think it is like gallows humor to be laughing at someone who is going to be sent to the gallows. That seems like that's just assertion of superiority and mocking and dehumanizing someone else. It's not trying to draw you and a group together so that you can feel better about a situation. But I mean, I could, I could tell you that when I, I looked at the 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 humor of, of the leadership themselves, so far as we can tell from like uh, interviews or memoirs of some of them, that it it did tend to be a much more kind of straightforward joshing for Stalin's favor or an important point that, say, for example, Stalin did apparently tell some of the same jokes that I found ordinary people telling. Um, 
I'm trying to remember. Like, I think one one example is this uh, like rather surreal joke where um, a, a teacher asks the class like who is the author of Yevgeny Onegin? And everyone's like, not me, <laughs> not me. <laughs> I didn't do it. Um, and as someone has to, they decide they need to, they need to find out. And then KVD operative is uh, like, here's this. And he's like, I'm going to find out who did this, who wrote this thing that he assumes <laughs> is a counter-revolutionary tract. And then he finds someone and forces him to admit it. Um, and Stalin tells um, the same joke, but, I think we miss the point if we think that that kind of moment of affinity means that they're kind of engaged in the same process at all. Because when Stalin told that joke, he was kind of menacingly doing it in front of his subordinates saying, you better be doing the job that I want you to do. You better be arresting the people I want you to arrest. And why aren't you doing a good job? Whereas people who uh, are laughing about essentially indiscriminate arrests in a climate of fear are the victims. They're laughing at their own misfortune, which is like a, a, a crucial distinction. Mm. So, so what does, uh, the, as you started out by saying, one of the things that kind of like struck you when you started this project was this and themselves within this broader context of the 1930s. So what is... How would you understand Soviet identity in light of this in jokes? How should we approach Hmm. Yeah, another good big question. Um, <laughs> I don't like small questions. No, you don't. <laughs> would, you, would you mind if before I answer that, I circle back to the, the question of um, the terror? Absolutely. That one, yes. It really interests me because it's, I have a problem with, with, the, with the terminology, um, because terror seems often to have been understood as meaning everyone is terrified or living in a state of like constant, uh, like frozen in the headlights of the NKVD's paddy wagons, that kind of sense. And yet what I found is that people were not mutely terrified or unwilling to talk about the terror with others. And they're actively joking, even in the workplace with their colleagues about the fact that arrests are spiraling out of control, like to the point where kids know um, like in schools, um, there's a kid using a catapult firing spitballs at a portrait of Varashilov. And the teacher's like, what are you doing? And he says, well, today he's a leader, but tomorrow he might be an enemy of the people. <laughs> you know, like, it, it's so prevalent that even a child is aware that, th that this is happening. And I think that like the use of the term great terror kind of misleads us into thinking people are terrified into silence or that they could only communicate like Orlando Figes' book is titled In Whispers. But that's not what I find. In fact, in conversations with people that, they, that people trusted, and sometimes they get it wrong, which is why it turns up in sources that aren't like in diaries or in the Harvard Interview Project, um, they, they say it in the workplace and out loud because it's something that's so worrying and intensely experienced at the time that they, they feel the need to address it. And because in that gallows humor effect way that I described, they can't, they can't control it, but they can try and go, look, it is absurd. So let me put it into a genre of the absurd where things aren't meant, aren't meant to make sense anyway. And I can laugh at them. Do you, do you also get the sense from this humor that there is a, a perverse joy in the sense that the people who are being arrested by, you know, publicly are the leadership, are the bosses. So there is a kind of, you know, uh, just desserts 
and this uh, and the humor towards the. T- I th- I think that I think there is some of that that but there's. I th- I felt like I found more of that in the the sense of just desserts about about Kirov, um, for some for some reason. But at the ones that seem to be going around at the time of the of the terror or the repressions or whatever we're going to call them, um, seem more to focus on the instability of it all. That everything is so uncertain that okay, you know, at, at a certain point you're like, wait, this is this is really spiraling now to the point where the what people are, are laughing about is the anxiety over who's going to disappear tomorrow, I guess. But, th- I mean, there's always some sentiment when laughing at, at like, the higher-ups being removed um, that, ha-ha, good. Right, because I, I kind of remember this, um, not, not necessarily, but at least in public opinion, um, but I'm mixing things up a long time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, let me ask the question of, of, of the identity again. So, um, so as I said, as you said earlier, you were inspired by this question of, you know, how did, what did Soviet citizens believe? What did they understand? How did they regard themselves in this tumultuous context of the 1930s? So what is humor and joke telling? What is its relationship to your understanding of Soviet identity? I guess I, I approached it by, in the same way that I, I said um, earlier that I enjoyed and was stimulated by reading Stephen Kotkin and ideas of speaking Bolshevik, potentially mouthing the lines of official ideology to get ahead, even if you didn't believe it. And then um, the likes of Jochen Helbeck and to, related but different, Egal Halfin, saying, well, plenty of people did believe it and they tried to become the mask that they put on um, and become that, that perfect um, citizen. And yet I thought... In these jokes, people are definitely not just speaking Bolshevik. They're speaking some Bolshevik, which is interesting. Like I said earlier, calling the regime out in its own language, on its own terms. But what I see is is a thing, a theme that, uh, a kind of metaphor that I use throughout the book uh, called cross-hatching, which is um, a drawing technique where you draw parallel lines like horizontally, parallel lines vertically, and you start to shade and create that three-dimensional effect. And I see that as a way to think about not a gray zone, but when these two different sets of influences, official and unofficial, meet, that something new is created in the middle. That it's not a case of regime ideology always clashing head-on with the unofficial, ordinary people's experience, but in the process of their meeting, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not one discourse winning over the other, but people are trying to see which bits actually make sense in their everyday life. Which bits, when it's inescapable, they have to live a certain way, how do they find a way for that to make sense and work for them? Um, So... People sort of, they interweave things like their pre-existing values from like personal loyalty to religious convictions and religious language, sexist prejudices and, and, and just basic ideas of fairness. There's a lot of jokes which focus on, well, on, on basic ideas of fairness, but also asserting that we ordinary people have a better common sense than the leadership. Um, and... It's at, at the heart of that kind of mixing together. There's, I see, a, a pretty profound desire that things should work as, as they're meant to. Um, and by trying to make the language of the regime make sense in everyday life, people could 
literally decode it, like take the the acronyms of the regime and say what, what they really meant. Like SSSR, the death of Stalin will save Russia is one of them. Or um, MTS is meant to be machine tractor station, or it could be the grave of comrade Stalin. Um, obviously, those all work in Russian and, and not in English. Um, but I don't know. I think an important point that, that, that I should try and get across is that we can't, we can't know for sure the difference between when people are mouthing the words or when they're believing them. But I don't think that many people at the time knew either that it's kind of experimental, that you're saying it and seeing how it feels. You're playing with this idea or this identity. You're there exploring and trying to understand where the limits of acceptability are for the things that they want in life and whether they can align with the things that the regime is going to allow them or encouraging them to do instead. As you also noted, though, that um, humor, uh, the Soviet regime saw humor as, as dangerous and a threat. So how did the government try to control and police humor? Yeah, it's a whole chapter in, in the book, and it was kind of my least favorite to research, but it was definitely important, like trawling through the documents. There's not really jokes in them. Um, but it's also quite a funny story, to be honest, because <laughs> up into the late, uh, around the late 1920s, there's this kind of anxiety amongst uh, the the leadership about humor. That a lot of them remember that they used scathing political humor when they were struggling in the revolutionary trenches, and they could easily believe that that actually helped them in overthrowing Tsarism. And so, I think of it as though there was this old rifle that you fought the revolution and civil war with, and now you just left it around the house, you know, if you allow humor to remain around. And, you know, someone's going to pick that up and use it. So maybe we shouldn't leave that lying around there. And so there's a debate um, that, that happens quite publicly in uh, the newspaper Literatonia Gazeta um, about whether or not we should have humor now that the class war has ended essentially. that It's a weapon of class struggle is what it was believed to be and defined as. Um, and so why would you need that anymore? So in, in typical Soviet fashion, they set up a commission to investigate the question. Of <laughs> <laughs> Which Lunacharsky leads, because he actually wrote a lot of things about, about humor and was pretty interested in it. And they get a budget and they're meant to look through the history of it across Western Europe and in Russia. Like, what, what should we find out about this? Um, and they kind of finished the, the debate in 1931 by saying, okay, it is um, a, a weapon or a tool that will be used in class interests, but we should use it as a, as a, a weapon to correct with laughter our friends and destroy with laughter our enemies. So as long as it's serving the revolutionary cause, then that's fine. Um, it's kind of an obvious compromise, but it took them a while to get there. Um, and but what then? What happens after they've made these these sorts of decisions? Um, well, I guess we could mention there's there's outlets for. I, well, I, I think the equivalent of what you said earlier the, the 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 regime doesn't allow there to be carnival letting off steam, but the closest they come is by having publications like Crocodile. A sir the satirical magazine, which mocks figures that the regime is uh, okay to mock, like corrupt local bureaucrats. And people could find some amusement in that because they didn't like corrupt local bureaucrats either. 
And so you try and steer the ire and annoyance of the people onto these these scapegoats, essentially. Um, but for ordinary people's humor, they it's dealt with in a changing way over the course of the decade. Um, and I did a lot of, like, uh, I'm not very good with Excel spreadsheets, but I, I created one with all the case files that I had to work out when people were being arrested, um, what they were being sentenced under, and so on. So the headline is that they're sentenced under um, Article 5810, or the equivalent in the Soviet republics, for anti-Soviet agitation. And the standard punishment overall was 10 years in the gulag. Um, well, not necessarily the gulag, but usually. Um, and f the weird thing is, though, that whilst it follows the trends of arrests, kind of peaks and troughs that we see, say, after Kirov's murder, there's more arrests for this sort of thing. There's a bit of a dip, and then it spikes up again during 1937 to 38, and then dips, and then before the war, it spikes up again. But what I found was they're practicing retroactive justice, that you could tell a joke in one year when it's kind of fine, and then a year or more later, you might end up in trouble for it because people remembered that you told that joke. And at the time, it was just flirting with the borders of acceptability. But then kind of like that, they changed the rules. And like if you took every tennis match that was played, but now you defined it according to a smaller court, suddenly all those shots that were on the line are now way out and you get, you get arrested for that. So people, in terms of understanding how much risk we think people were taking, a lot of the time they, they couldn't know because at the time they were right, but then it was undone when the rules were changed. When, when, the, when they were prosecuted for telling jokes, did that usually also come with other kind of violations of you know, political norm or social norms? So was the joke was the, joke the central... Uh, crime, or was the joke part of a series of other thing, other crimes? It didn't have to be part of a, a series, but it definitely, uh, in a lot of cases, it would be seen as like evidence that you were clearly an enemy. So let's look and find if there's other bad things that you did. But generally, the the only other somewhat common like actual prosecution like article that was used was fifty eight eleven, which is um, saying you were part of a counter-revolutionary group. But generally that meant you told the jokes with some friends and they laughed. Um, so it, it didn't have to be that you were then accused of being a spy or a saboteur as well, but it was very fluid that these these kinds of charges could, could come up in the process. What, what I found particularly interesting about the change over time um, is that if at first humor is seen as a weapon um, that could be aimed at the heart of the, the party and the revolution. By 1935, that changes um, because it's the, the, there's a, a document which, um, if I remember right, Vyshinsky puts out, which says that the, you mustn't actually quote the anti-Soviet jokes that, that people are making. And this is in the same document where it says, in the same way you don't quote um, the details in espionage cases of what secrets people have been so they're as scared of like leaking espionage information as they are of telling jokes as, and so to, to me this suggests it's no longer a weapon it's like a mind virus so only the top level legal professionals who are super trustworthy are allowed to even see the evidence for which people are being put away in case it infects them one of the other like interesting thing 
you you talk about, and this is in the context of police uh, joke telling, is that you know joke telling, of course, was risky, but also the act of telling a joke was a form of sociability and a form of um, creating or at least building trust or at least expressing trust and also intimacy with other people. Like you just said that, you know, if you tell a joke and you're you're hanging out with friends, you tell a joke and they all laugh. Now you're part of a counter-revolutionary organization. So, so, so talk about this, this issue of joke telling as a social practice in terms of sociability for, for people. Yeah, this is one of the things that interested me the most. Like I felt that a lot of what I was writing in the book was kind of, okay, let's let's talk about the actual jokes. And now to the stuff I'm really interested in, like what did it do for people to tell the jokes? And I began to see it through the, the frame in terms of, like you said, how, how, do, how do jokes help people create trust in times of maximum distrust? And... I thought this is a lot like um, the mafia. That um, and I read this this great work by Diego Gambetta, who looks at the criminal codes of the underworld, um, where the mafia, because they certainly can never appeal to any higher government authority to protect them and their business, they have to make sure they communicate in careful codes, know who they can trust, have little kind of signs, styles of dress, that sort of thing that show who they are to each other but not to anybody else. Um, and they have certain set phrases and so on to identify, kind of like the Masons, I guess, to a degree. So I thought, okay, I don't think the ordinary people in the Soviet Union are criminals, but the state thinks they are, so why don't we treat them as though they're criminals and think about how criminals communicate? Um, and one of the, the really cool things in Gambetta's work is how he lays out how you can show, you can create trust by making yourself vulnerable. Um, that, say, if we're two people who want to do some sort of dodgy business together, why should you trust me? Why should I trust you? Well, if I tell you something compromising about myself, then I'm putting myself in your power. And so it's very unlikely I'm going to betray you because I've given you something to hold over me. And if you do the same, then we're bound together in this sense of mutual culpability. And it, it sort of creates an intimacy you're showing, like, I'm showing you the skeletons in my closet and you, and, and vice versa. So I thought of this as um, a kind of <laughs> a fun mixed metaphor that, say, as, as part of joking, you're often positioning yourself in the same position as somebody else, like going, just stand here and see the world how I see it. Do you see that? And you laugh like, oh, I see that too. So you're kind of saying we're all in the same boat. But as soon as you've done that in this situation, you're also committing yourself to going down with the ship. So what are some of your favorite jokes? Well, that's, it's always a question that comes up and I always struggle to answer because I guess what I like about the jokes is what they tell me more than necessarily what's, what the jokes are. But uh, because you, you told me to prepare, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I thought of some. So, some of my favorites are just really the throwaway lines. Like when you hear incredibly bad news, you're just like, oh, life is becoming jollier, merrier there, <laughs> or thank you comrade Stalin, inappropriate jokes. One that really cracked me up is, as part of the Stalin cult, like everything is named after Stalin, um, which is, you know, noun imini Stalina. And so it was discovered, I think, in Odessa, in a factory or, or something, there were, uh, by the toilet sign, it's like, toilet imini Stalina. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, just, I just find that very attractive. Um, and another one 
which was uh, one of my favorite feats of translation. I had, I had help from David Brandenburger with this one. Um, it, I can give you like the bit in Russian, but I'll tell you that the translation, um, people, someone's complaining about the reality of, of communism and co-ops. And he says, they build all these co-ops and they claim it's freedom, but I don't think it's much of a commune if some can come on in, but for others it commune isn't. <laughs> and the Russian is like Komuna a komunyet. Wow, those are those are. I mean, you have so many. It's just really. I was really just blown away by the just the number that you you collected. Uh, thanks for that. And finally, so how does the, your focus on humor um, change our understanding of life under Stalin? I guess it's down for other people to to decide if it changes anything. What I felt like I was trying to do and find out was to challenge the idea that society was atomized. I thought, actually, when I look at the 30s, it's kind of like a natural disaster. We we often think during times of natural disaster that, that people turn on each other and it's all man as wolf to man. But actually, the sociology all shows that the vast majority of people help each other. Um, in the face of that and in the face of shared difficulties people draw together more closely they and by by looking at everything through the lens of like whether you're a political dissident or not i don't think tells us a useful story but what part of the problem here is that um in memoirs and in many of the sources we have um the people reported that Oh yeah, it's a society of maximum distrust, and Pavlik Morozov, who denounced his his father, is that was real. We couldn't trust anyone, and yet in the same breath or interview or passage, they're like, "My family was different. My friends were different," and there's just so many people who who think that they are the exception to the rule. They're not seeing the broader pattern that through acts like joke telling, which is kind of a thermometer of can we trust each other or proving that we can trust each other, kind of can see that there is this sociability that's maybe fragmented, but society isn't simply atomized. Um, and what I think I see in, in the humor overall is that people are not brainwashed or terrified, but it's also not just a gray zone where nothing makes sense. In, in the jokes, what I, I try to show is that people are trying to make sense of the world around them. A lot of the, the jokes kind of function like proverbs to kind of sarcastically tell you what the reality of, of the world is, the life is that you're living. Um, as simple as um, saying things like the, uh, the quieter you are, the further you'll go, or there is no truth in Pravda and no news in Izviestia. They're somewhere between a joke and just a bit of life advice so that you can try and understand um, the world around you. Um, and in amongst the jokes as well, so I, kind of I said earlier a bit, this is not a zero-sum game. We're actually seeing a mixture of uh, not double-think. We're seeing this mixture of the interaction of the new and old, the ideological and the lived realities, where people are trying to weave it together and make it make sense, both to meet their everyday requirements in a practical sense, but also their emotional needs. People are trying to find... I don't call it a counterculture, I say it's more like a counterpoint, like in, in music, where you're trying to find a different but pleasing melody that fits with the tune that you're trying to play and find some kind of harmony um, between like, the tune that they're expecting you to sing and the one that you are having to sing in your everyday reality. That was John Waterlow, PhD in history at Oxford. 
His book manuscript is tentatively titled It's Only a Joke, Comrade, Humor, Trust, and Everyday Life Under Stalin, 1929-1941. He's the co-author of the forthcoming War Crimes, Trials, and Investigations, a multidisciplinary introduction to be published by Palgrave in a couple of months, and he's the host of the podcast Voices in the Dark, which features conversations and interviews about real life, psychology, philosophy, psychedelics, spirituality, social dynamics, and much more. You can find episodes of Voices in the Dark at voicesinthedark.world. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye!